Section 5 of Pascendi Dominici Gregis On the Errors of the Modernists by Pope St. Pius X Translated by Thomas E. Judge This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2 To Appendix to Encyclical Letter Pascendi Dominici Gregis On the Errors of the Modernists Pragmatism Pragmatism is a system of philosophy, or rather an attitude assumed towards the whole world of thought and reality, which values everything by its practical effects. All knowledge is related to action as means to end. Hence, the old ideal of pursuing knowledge for its own sake is derided as a mere will-o'-the-wisp, or mere fata morgana, the pursuit of which leads us far away from the true, the beautiful, and the good. Its test, or standard, of the value of any principle or system is the practical difference. Its acceptance, or non-acceptance, will involve for the individual and the race. No philosophical theory was ever more vague than this very vagueness, while it commends it to many persons of conflicting philosophical and theological leanings, renders it also inane and useless. Not even the doctrine of the Blessed Trinity, which would seem to be, of all others, the most remote from our practical concerns, can be said to be without some practical effects. But the general disposition of the masses is to define the word practical in a very narrow sense, and restrict its application to secular concerns. The popularity of the theory is, in this country, especially unfortunate. Indeed, pragmatism may be said to be a philosophical statement of the predominant motives that have influenced the people of the United States in the course of their history, and especially of those that have shaped our present industrial organization. Pragmatism, as applied by the modernists, means an interpretation, or rather evaluation, of the truths of the Christian religion by their bearing on moral conduct. Stripped of its nebulous verbiage and boldly viewed, it is identical with the principle that the end justifies the means. How opposed it is to the entire Christian scheme may be inferred from the emphasis which the Church has always laid on the distinction between things that are intrinsically good and things that are intrinsically bad. For instance, she has always taught that no motive or reason can excuse a lie, since, of its inmost character, a lie is opposed to the divine nature, which is truth itself. But no consistent pragmatist can refuse to endorse lying when the balance of results would be beneficial. Pragmatism, in any form, is clearly incompatible with belief in the existence of an absolutely perfect God, for an all-holy one is an unchangeable standard of truth and right. The results, therefore, of doctrine in its effect on human conduct, are of secondary importance. Pragmatism, or the deification of success, or valuation by results, is opposed to a belief in the absolute and makes all things relative, like agnosticism and positivism. It is interesting to trace the connection between pragmatism and the theory of selective attention. It is beyond question that we merely attend to that which is of special interest and therefore, in some sense, of practical value to us. 
under how many almost totally different aspects will the same object be considered by persons with different interests? The flower, to the botanist, is a specimen that illustrates certain scientific principles of growth and classification. To the aesthete, it is an object of beauty. To the florist, it is an article for sale. The same person will appeal to the lawyer merely as a client, to the politician as a voter, to the clergyman as a member of his congregation, to the tailor as a customer, etc. This theory of selective attention has been carried to such an extreme that some of its advocates hold that we not merely determine by selective attention what will dominate for the time our consciousness, but that we thereby, as it were, create reality. In other words, we make things exist by the process of directing attention to them. Of course, it is true that, practically speaking, only those things exist for us in which we have an interest and to which, consequently, we direct attention. But the assumption that our thinking gives objects reality is one of those wild and sophistical speculations which serve to discredit philosophy in the eyes of thousands. The hypothesis underlying pragmatism is precisely the same as that underlying the extravagant theory of selective attention. Objects, or truths, are assumed to have no reality except that which they have for us. Consequently, the criterion of truth, goodness and beauty, which pragmatism espouses, is the following. Consider if, and how far, your interests are affected, and the answer will determine the whole value of the proposition under investigation. Dogma It will be interesting, and instructive, to examine in some detail how the modernists apply their principles in explaining the nature and development of dogma. In this part, I shall follow closely the lead of La Piétonnière, who has published two excellent articles in the September and October numbers of Annales de Philosophie Chrétienne, as part of a review of Monsieur Leroy's well-known volume Dogme et Critique. A prejudice exists in the minds of many persons, at the present time, against dogmatic religion. Leroy ascribes its origin to what he calls the intellectualist conception. The characteristic of intellectualism, which has been already explained, is that it regards as secondary, and derived, the moral and practical meaning of dogma, while it proclaims the intellectual or theoretical sense to be its essential or constitutive element. But dogma, thus viewed, is, according to modernists, of its very nature incapable of verification and unthinkable. Perhaps it may be said that, though intrinsically incapable of verification, it has extrinsic evidence in its favour and appeals effectually to the human mind in the name of authority. In this hypothesis, it would enslave the human spirit, which imperiously demands freedom, independence, and autonomy. Neither religious doctrine nor moral obligation should be considered as having a transcendent origin or as coming to us from without, but as pullulating or springing from our own nature. The transcendent hypothesis, according to the modernists, would place an intolerable yoke upon the human mind. Leroy proceeds to subject certain dogmas to critical examination in the light of the intellectualist conception, 
for the purpose of showing that, thus interpreted, they are a mere mirage that deceives our mental vision. Take, for example, the dogma of the personality of God. If we interpret it according to ordinary intellectual standards, or, in other words, experience, we shall fall into anthropomorphism. For what is our notion of personality in last analysis? A man is said to be a person because he is sui juris, or self-conscious, and exercises control over his thoughts and volitions. But we cannot apply this concept, which is derived from our own psychological experience, to God, without reducing him to the level of man. May we not say, however, that the divine personality is incomparable and transcendent, that no term can be predicated univocally, but only analogically, of God and finite beings. But Leroy holds that any form of analogy consists in establishing a resemblance between God and creatures, in attributing the perfections of the finite to the infinite, in thinking of the deity in terms of human qualities, and consequently cannot escape anthropomorphism. A dogma of a different type is the resurrection of Christ. From it especially, the modernists elaborate their theory of faith and religious knowledge. By the resurrection, we mean that, having passed through the gates of death, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, returned to life on earth. But no Christian holds that he came back to life in the same form of existence that was his before his death. After his resurrection, he had a glorified body. The word life, therefore, is applied to Christ in one sense before his death and in another after his resurrection. The two meanings are incommensurable. One comes within the scope of our experience, the other does not. How then can we say that the word life in the second sense has any meaning for pure reason? Footnote. The assumption throughout is that our knowledge is entirely empirical, that we can only know what enters into our experience, namely phenomena. This principle they take from Kant's agnosticism. End footnote. It is, says Leroy, a metaphor inconvertible into definite ideas. We can only interpret it by introducing elements which belong to human life as we ordinarily experience it and as Christ possessed it before his body was glorified. What distinguishes the dogma of the resurrection from others is that, instead of being expressed merely in symbolic language, behind which would lie concealed a reality unknowable and unthinkable by us, it purports to present a fact that occurred in space and time, and that entered into the drama of historical events at a given moment and manifested itself to the sight touch and hearing of man. Must we not, therefore, consider it as an historical event, the reality of which has been historically demonstrated? But, says Leroy, the resurrection, as a passage to a glorious life, is unthinkable, because it does not come within the range of experience. It should, therefore, be eliminated from the domain of thought, because it was eliminated from the domain of experience. In order that the resurrection could be an object of observation, like all other facts of experience, Christ should have resumed his former life by the reanimation of his dead body. But, says Leroy, the resurrection, as an article of Catholic faith, is different from this. 
it means the entrance into glory and the transition to the supernatural order of existence, so that the body attributed to Christ after the resurrection had nothing in common with the bodies which constitute the world of our experience. What then can we understand by the reality of a glorified body? That is to say, of a body withdrawn from the system of space and time relations, which constitutes the very notion of physical reality. Hence it may be well to call attention to Monsieur Leroy's peculiar theory of the nature of body. He regards it, not as an isolated portion of the world around us, a reality existing independently of others, but as a centre of coordination having physical continuity with the whole universe, so that the reality of a body is constituted by its bonds with the aggregate of material things. From the scientific standpoint, he argues that if the resurrection of Christ were a space and a time phenomenon, it would destroy the very conditions of the existence of the material universe. For since bodies have no reality, except through the bonds or ties that unite them to the whole, a break in their continuity, or uniformity, the hypothesis that Christ's glorified body, which had no space and time relation, was identical with his original body, would leave only the disjecta membra of a world. The supernatural may indeed intervene in the world of physical reality, but grace does not act in the bosom of nature except by clothing itself in nature's own, and not in glorified or supernatural forms. Leroy does not mean to deny the reality of the resurrection, but he relegates it to another and higher order than the phenomenal order of facts occurring in space and time. We ought, he says, to accept a dogma on the word of God who has revealed it, and not because of its historical evidence. Modernists contend that the apparitions, even if we assume that they were not hallucinations pure and simple, should be regarded as the effect of the spiritual manifestation of Christ, giving evidence of his survival in glory, and should not be taken as a resumption of his terrestrial life. It is worthy of note that Christ appeared only to his disciples, and not to the general body of the Jews, from which Leroy seems to infer, influenced probably by Ronan's theory, that it was the very anterior faith and love of the apostles which objectivized the image of Christ already enshrined in their imaginations and in their hearts. From the discrepancies in the gospel narratives of the resurrection, Leroy concludes that the narratives are legendary and imaginary, in conformity with the habits of thought that prevailed in their environment. The risen Christ is not, therefore, an outer experience, or rather, he is only an object of religious experience. If the Apostle's vision of him be called perception, the term should be qualified so as to read religious perception. What is historically true is that the Apostles really believed that Christ had returned to life after having visited Hades, the reality, therefore, with which the New Testament deals is psychological, but not extramental. The apparition should be regarded as an evidence of faith, and not as an evidence of facts. Leroy's criticism, therefore, comes to this. There exists only one order of knowledge in the speculative sense, while there are two orders of reality, which, so far as we are concerned, are absolutely separated and incommensurable. The phenomenal order, which, 
coming within the range of our experience, is the object of our concepts and our theories, and the noumenal order, which, being wholly foreign to our experience, note that Leroy confounds the noumenal and the supernatural orders, is also beyond the reach of thought, and, consequently, theoretically unknowable. A dogma, therefore, is utterly unknowable, except in the practical sense as conveying a moral precept. Is Leroy an agnostic? Against this charge he defends himself strenuously. He maintains that there exists a necessary relation between dogma and thought, and that it is once a right and a duty not to rest satisfied with blind faith. But what relation can there be between dogmas and thought, if the dogmas are unknowable? To answer this question, he distinguishes the believer as a believer and the believer as a philosopher. To this distinction corresponds two aspects of thought equally possible, equally legitimate, and even equally necessary. The one is essentially practical, and the other essentially speculative. This distinction runs through the entire system of Leroy. The believer should not consider the dogmatic formula as literally expressing a reality, but as conveying what we should do, or how we should comport ourselves in dealing with this reality. The dogma, thus viewed, while remaining theoretically unknowable, inasmuch as it is transcendent reality, becomes practically thinkable under the form of conduct which it commands. In this way, dogma enters into our experience, since we must live it, and the relations between the human mind and religious truth, which appear to be definitely broken off, are restored. We escape agnosticism without relapsing into intellectualism, which would create an invincible discord between science and dogma. According to this interpretation, dogma gives an orientation to all the modes of our activity. Pragmatism takes the places of agnosticism, and the Catholic is merely restricted by rules of conduct and not by mere theories or ideas. Dogmas, says Leroy, are not merely enigmatic and nebulous formulae which God promulgated in order to check the pride of our spirit. They have a moral and practical sense. They have a vital meaning, more or less accessible, to us according to the degree of spirituality which we have attained. What, according to this view, are we to understand by the dogmas? God is personal. Jesus is risen. Something apparently very simple and within the reach of everybody. God is personal, conveys to us the practical command. In all your relations with God, act as you would in your relations with a human person. Similarly, Jesus is risen means, in your relations to him, shape your conduct as you would have shaped it before his death, as you would now shape it in dealing with one of your contemporaries. Thus we have come to understand and appreciate Christianity as a source and rule of life, a discipline of moral and religious action, instead of regarding it with the intellectualists as a system of speculative philosophy. Yet Leroy will not consent to be classified with those who hold that Christianity is a mere ethical system, however sublime. The positive dogmas it contains have primarily a practical meaning, and instead of deriving this from their theoretical interpretation, he derives the latter from the former. 
Dogma, he says, is a thought-action, and it is in action, and in the measure in which we act, that we understand it. The most efficacious means of determining its significance is to compel oneself to live it. Faith in the resurrection was a point of departure and the principle of the greatest achievements which the human soul has accomplished. It has accumulated, during the career of its marvellous sway, an inexhaustible and abiding profundity. The apparitions were mental constructions, true hallucinations, if the expression be permissible. In the order of religion, as well as in the scientific order, that which establishes the value of a mental construction, that which distinguishes it from pathological hallucination, even though both be produced by the same mechanism and be accompanied by the same nervous changes, is intensity of life and the resistance which they offer to the corroding influences of time. Pathological hallucination, on the other hand, reveals a lowering of vitality and yields to the dissolving influences which it successively encounters. Viewed in this light, the apparitions of Jesus by the Apostles have been an experience which faith itself established in the depths of the subliminal or subconscious self, and by which it entered into a genuine relation with the mysterious living reality corresponding to it. Themselves the product of a previously existing faith, the apparitions reacted on this faith, strengthened, enriched, and developed it, and something corresponds to it in the absolute reality. By anterior faith, Monsieur Leroy evidently understands a sort of implicit faith, the object of which the apparitions have been at once the means of finding, and in finding, of making explicit and definite. They were a mode of realizing the resurrection relative and adapted to the capacity of the disciples, to their degree of culture, and to the prevailing conceptions of their time and environment. By reason of the mental condition of the period, they could not think of the resurrection except by means of a certain theory of matter and life which today is obsolete. For them, the resurrection meant the reanimation of a corpse, and the reanimation implied apparitions. Thence they deduced that the corpse must have disappeared from the place where it was laid, and if, in reality, on inspection of the tomb, the body could not be discovered, we must recognize that its removal was providential in order that the evidence of the tomb should corroborate the apparitions. All this shows the contingent character of the apparitions. They served provisionally as a means of expressing the faith, and were destined to disappear like other forms of the same kind, such as the descent into hell and the ascension conceived as implying locations in space. In these, today, the most conservative see only the husks of a faith which defines itself according to popular categories. But it is not the images and concepts by which the resurrection expresses itself that are important. It is the underlying spiritual reality which these images and concepts symbolize and which, thus comprehended, gave to human life an orientation that has transformed it. In this consists truly and essentially the dogma which claims our assent. Therefore, in all cases the dogmatic formulae should be interpreted in terms of practical or moral action, and not in technical or speculative language. We must look, not for theories, but for directions. 
but this does not prevent us from having the right and even the duty of constructing as far as possible theories or interpretations of the reality corresponding to dogma we cannot avoid doing so since speculative thought is part of our concrete life monsieur leroy says that faith cannot be radically separated even from theoretical thought for it is destined to expand into the beatific vision of which it is an anticipation and a germ and not a heterogeneous form of exchange for the object which it purchases moreover it is impossible for faith to keep clear of science and philosophy because the human mind is one and abhors dualism he even admits that dogmas have a philosophic value and that one can regard them as speculative propositions we must think and express our faith and for that purpose we must have recourse to ideas and words faith therefore must think itself in terms of all the systems of philosophy with which it comes in contact either to harmonize itself with them or to detach itself from them otherwise there would be the necessity of maintaining a double consciousness thus arise theological systems which must not be confounded with the experiences of faith they have the same role as theories in science namely to coordinate the results attained and to suggest new lines of research theology therefore is the philosophy of faith which it aims at assimilating by means of speculative thought dogma is not merely an object for the contemplation of the mind material offered to the mind statically it is dynamic and what we should consider in the images and in the concepts is this dynamic character the movement which pervades them and which carries the mind incessantly from an inadequate symbol to a better one and as a movement is only thoroughly known in its progress so to perceive the truth of a dogma we must endeavour to live it the dogma gives to the mind a speculative impulse in submitting to it a problem to be solved theological theories always have for their aim to clothe the data of faith with the forms of reason monsieur leroy evidently means that at each epoch dogma should accommodate itself to the philosophy and science of that period it does not draw its true value from such accommodation but it should express itself theoretically in terms of contemporary philosophy and science the believer is bound not to attack the essential element of faith which is the attitude commanded by the dogma with this reservation it is his right and even his duty to employ the science and the philosophy of his time in adapting the formula of the dogma to the intellectual spirit of the age this intellectualization of dogma at a given moment or its expression in terms of science and philosophy is as variable as a scientific theory or philosophical system in this way monsieur leroy attempts to show us how one can give a philosophical thinkable idea of the resurrection in rejecting the reanimation of christ's corpse it is only a certain idea of the resurrection and not its reality he says that he rejects he repudiates the mythical theory and also the symbolical theory which would make of the resurrection a mere symbol of immortality christ not only survives in the memory of his followers and in the influence he exerts on their lives but he lives by his presence in our midst between the resurrection and the eucharistic presence there is a close connection this presence cannot be phenomenal that is 
it does not belong to the sensible order. But how can it be real and yet not phenomenal? To answer this question, Leroy has recourse to a new theory of matter. He is an idealist. Matter, he holds, exists only in the mind and relatively to it. He distinguishes between pure matter, which is a need or exigency of the spirit, to reduce itself to a mechanism and contract habits, an actual matter, which has an explicit and concrete reality. Actual matter is a product of the mind, of the group of mechanisms which it has created, and the system of habits which it has contracted, as a necessary condition of its action. Nevertheless, this matter is social and hereditary. It is a bond of the monads and a result of their collective action, and, far from being something subjective to each individual, is born in the midst of pre-existing matter, which truly limits and conditions it. But matter, for the most part, has fallen into unconsciousness and automatism. It is thus an obstacle to the liberty of the spirit, which, by right, should be sovereign, and human progress consists in gradually freeing the spirit from its trammels. This being so, we can easily understand what death means, or the cessation of practical activity and phenomenal disappearance. Death occurs when we abandon the point in which we are in contact with, and, as it were, embedded in matter. Then the mechanism which composed the body, having fallen off from the soul, dissolves, little by little, into the common mass of nameless things, whose only function is inertia. But the soul is not thereby totally disembodied. It bears with it its own body, which is pure matter, which means that the soul retains the power of reconstituting mechanisms more or less similar to those it has lost, and, consequently, to play a new role in the sensible world. Thus it is explained how it can afterwards return to life. For this it is sufficient that the pure matter retained should realise itself, that its power should pass to act in order that it may resume life and reappear in the phenomenal order. This will be a resurrection in its own flesh. The body is the same after as before, because it has, as its principle, the same germ. Everything takes place as in ordinary vital phenomena of assimilation and elimination. For this would be merely a natural resurrection, a resumption of phenomenal life, and what we are endeavouring to conceive is a supernatural resurrection, which implies the assumption of a glorified body. The point of contact at which the soul comes into relationship with the whole universe is its body, which, in a sense, is the universe. If, in the natural state, a living body detaches itself from universal continuity, it is because, through automatism and unconsciousness, its practical power of direct action and reaction is localised at the point in which its life remains conscious and autonomous. For the most part it remains a mere potentiality, which slumbers or acts habitually, blindly and mechanically. But when the conscious subject conquers the unconscious, when liberty triumphs over automatism, then the appearances of limitation and disconnection vanish. The body ceases to be externally visible as an object among other objects. It exists in the fullness of its being, and that, which was before only slumbering potentiality, has become actuality and reality. 
there is no longer any frontier marking the spot to which this potentiality is confined. It is a centre of perception and initiative everywhere. It has become a glorious body. It has realised the perfect unfolding of its potentiality. It has the entire universe for the scene of its immediate activity and lives no longer in mechanical inertia and subliminal penumbra, but in light and liberty. Behold how the presence of the living Christ can be sovereignly real without being apparent. It only ceases to be visible because it has become supremely real. The resurrection, thus conceived, is an animation of the entire universe by Christ, which necessarily implies a supernatural presence, a presence that is not included in the phenomenal order. A natural resurrection would have consisted in reproducing certain mechanisms, that is, in resuming the appearances of limitation and disconnection, which render an ordinary body perceptible as a distinct object of the phenomenal world, while the resurrection of Christ has been a victory over all that, a complete escape from automatism and unconsciousness, in order to act in the fullness of light and liberty. By the solidarity which binds us and all nature to him, the resurrection has become for us and for all nature at once a pledge and a means of a similar triumph. In order that this seed of glory should develop and fructify, we have only to nourish our souls by participation more and more in the life of Christ through faith and the sacraments, especially the Holy Eucharist. The resurrection is a permanent fact dominating time and space, indissolubly bound to the Eucharist and the Church, and not a mere transitory fact of a particular place and a particular moment. Dogma, understood in its practical sense, is immediately within the reach of everybody. It is not necessary to be a scientist or a philosopher in order to assent to it. There is no danger of humanity becoming thereby divided into two castes, of which one would be charged with the duty of elaborating ideas which the others could only slavishly accept. Moreover, this view of dogma leaves intact the liberty of the spirit and its undeniable right to reject every conception which would impose itself from without. Recourse to authority, totally objectionable in the order of thought, is permissible in the sphere of action. Liberty, having no place and no role in the steps of discursive thought, authority could not affect that I should find an argument, solid or weak, that such or such a notion should convey a particular meaning to my mind. I do not say merely, says Leroy, that it is not right, but that the process is radically impossible, for it is I who think, and not authority that thinks for me. But in the practical order, it is different. I am always free to take one attitude rather than another, but where liberty intervenes, authority can intervene. We can thus see, also, how the act of faith is free, as it should be. It is precisely because the dogma commands an act, that its value verifies itself only in action, or in living the dogma, that faith is free. But one sees also how the autonomy of the spirit is safeguarded, since the dogmas, insofar as they are made known, present themselves as data for speculation, as matter for theories to be formed about, and not as a theory already formed. What facts are to science, dogmas are to theological speculation. 
Autonomy of the spirit is in perfect accord with the principle of submission to fact, and the most scrupulous and jealous autonomist cannot see any impediment to liberty of research in the necessity of admitting that facts judge theories. That which was repugnant in the intellectualist conception was that dogmas imposed solutions ready-made, binding the spirit from without, whilst in the present hypothesis they only present problems upon which the mind is called to exercise its activity freely. Thus understood, they no longer hamper scientific or philosophical speculation, but they become themselves objects of speculation. This speculation consists always in intellectualizing the dogma in terms of science and philosophy. It is variable and perfectible. The authority of the Church has no right to restrict it to this or that definite theory, but only to uphold the immutable element of dogma against the theories which misunderstand or misrepresent it. The Church is the guardian of the deposit of faith, and not of systems of philosophy and theology. By its dogmas, understood in the true sense, it is not obstructive of the movement of thought, but on the contrary, stimulates it by furnishing it with a new object. Has Monsieur Leroy truly removed the reproach of heteronomy, which modern philosophers have made against religion? The contradictions in which his theory abounds are too palpable to call for detailed exposure. Its exposition carries with it its own refutation. End of Part 2 of Appendix to Encyclical Letter Pascendi Dominici Gregis On the Errors of the Modernists